Well, good evening. We'll make a start. Welcome to Friday night seminar here at Middle East Centre at St Anthony's College. My name is Michael Willis. I'm Director of Middle East Centre and we are very pleased to welcome all of you, our friends and colleagues here from the SBS Core Lecture Theatre in Oxford and also our many friends and colleagues online. I hope you can hear us still beaming in. We're seeing from all over the world. So welcome this evening. This is the sixth of our weekly Friday seminar series. Those of you who've been attending throughout this term will know that this term series so far has focused on research and publications and books being written by members of the modern Middle Eastern studies community here at Oxford. Now, this evening we have a lecture by someone who, although part of another university community, we still very much like to claim as a member of the academic family here at the Middle East Centre. Professor Joseph Sassoon is director of the Center for Contemporary Arab Studies at Georgetown University in Washington, D.C. in the States. But much more importantly, he's a graduate of this college, St. Anthony's, where he completed his DPhil. He is also a longtime friend and supporter of the Middle East Center, where he sits on the Middle East Center's advisory board and St. Anthony's College, of which he is a, a foundation fellow. Most of you will probably be aware, um, Joseph, through his work on modern Iraq, notably his book, Saddam Hussein's Ba'ath Party, Inside an Authoritarian Regime, where he used the release, the documents that were taken in Iraq after the invasion with all the details of the Ba'ath Party and wrote a fascinating internal history of the Ba'ath under Saddam Hussein. He also wrote a book on the Iraqi refugees of the first decade of the 21st century. And more recently, his book, Autonomy of Authoritarianism in the Arab Republics has become a mainstay of bibliographies and course reading lists which seek to explain authoritarianism in region. And I've had several occasions where people, I've had the unusual um, experience of somebody saying that they've, they've heard of a book that I wrote and then said it's because it was mentioned in Joseph Sassoon. So <laughs> thank you very much, Joseph, for giving me a little bit of uh, coverage, even though. So thank you. I've certainly uh, definitely got more coverage thanks to you. But thank you very much. Now, this evening, we're here to hear Joseph introduce and speak about his new book, which moves away from the more contemporary focus of his recent research and writings to look at the remarkable history of a branch of his own extended family. As Joseph will say, it's not the direct family, but a branch of his own extended family. The book is entitled Global Merchants. Uh, the Enterprise and Extravagance of the Sassoon Dynasty. Now, if you would like a copy, we do have copies outside and you'll be most welcome to buy them after the session. Now, I don't want to give too much away about the book before Joseph speaks. Suffice to say that it really is an absolutely fascinating story that's told out in the book. Moreover, it's encountered rather appropriately in a college porter's lodge here in Oxford. Joseph will say something about that. It's also a story that has many connections to the family history of our our dear emeritus fellow at the Middle East Center, Professor Avi Schleim, who like Joseph also hails from Baghdad and who is also writing himself about his own family's history. So therefore we are delighted to have Avi join us and helped us discuss Joseph's books, which we'll do after Joseph has spoken. Joseph will start and speak about the book. Then we will have Avi and Joseph discuss some of the common themes within it. And then we'll open it up to questions and discussion to the audience, both here in Oxford and to those of you online. If you would like to ask a question or make a comment online, please use the Q&A function that you'll find on Zoom. Just type in your question. You can leave your name or not, and we'll process that through. So use that. You can put that in at any time, and we'll draw on that when we have time. But you haven't come here to listen to me. We're here to hear about Joseph. Joseph. Thank you very much.
Thank you very much, Michael, and, and thank you. It is absolutely wonderful to be back here where I feel it's really home. Every book I've, after coming out, it has been connected to here. It did start this book somewhere else, um, not maybe at St. Anthony's, but at All Souls. But there is also a culprit here sitting in the front row who has been uh, pushing me for the last seven years. That is uh, Eugene Rogan to write the book. The book has really many facets. The life of a Baghdadi Jewish family, trade and colonialism, family rifts and issues facing dynasties, globalization in the 19th century and what it meant for global trader, anglicization and the desperate needs for immigrant families to be accepted in a new homelands, and why some dynasties decline and others continue. But I thought as this talk is part of the Middle East Center, it is only appropriate to focus on the first feature, being a Baghdadi family and the connection to their place of birth but I will also talk briefly about trade and few other aspects. There are many characters in this book, but five main figures successively take center stage. David Sassoon, the first, the founder of the dynasty, his eldest son, Abdullah, who later on in the 1870s becomes Sir Albert, his second son, Elias, who built the business in China, and Farha, who later changes her name to Flora, the first woman in the family to run the global business, and finally, Sir Victor Sassoon, who presided over the business in the last 25 years. Other characters include Sir Philip Sassoon, Siegfried Sassoon, the famous World War I poet, and of course, other siblings of Abdullah and Elias and their descendants. The family, one of the things that really led me to, as Michael mentioned, to move a little bit from authoritarianism to talk about this, is the incredible trove of uh, documents that I have found. The family seems to have kept every scrap of paper. Their archives stretch for more than 100 years and they engaged in copious correspondence, both for business and social matters. Almost all the business correspondence, at least until 1920, was written in Baghdadi Jewish to prevent outsiders from reading their letters. Family members used their dialect, but wrote it in Hebrew characters, jumping from one subject to another. You could see there are no paragraphs. It's formal in the beginning, very respectful, but by the third line, criticism, between one brother to another, complaining about different issues, reputation of the family was of utmost importance. Interestingly, most of the social news within the family was in English, particularly towards the end of the 19th century. Let me just talk a little bit about Baghdad because the family lived in Baghdad for almost 2,500 years. But the early 19th century conflict with the governor who was embezzling taxes led Sheikh Sassoon bin Saleh, father of David, the one you show his picture, the founder, to leave Baghdad with his eldest son. 
After a year in Bushir in southern Iran, he died, but his family, now headed by the oldest son, David, moved to Bombay. There have been many erroneous versions of why David and his father, Sheikh Sassoon, fled Baghdad. These versions were even repeated by members of the family, but research in the Ottoman archives clearly debunks the idea that anti-Semitism was the reason for the escape. Baghdad and its merchants suffered from all religions, suffered at the hands of a corrupt Wali Daoud Pasha, who was known to embezzle money from these merchant families. And if they refused, would arrest one of the sons until he received his ransom. Indeed, David was arrested to put pressure on his father, the sheikh, who paid a ransom. And when David was released, he fled immediately, followed by his father. All David's siblings stayed and lived in Baghdad, and I am the descendant of one of those siblings. It seems that during the year at Bushir, father and son learned about commercial opportunities in Bombay from visiting British officials and from traders based around the Persian Gulf ports. Bushir itself was slowly re-emerging as a commercial port and a bustling center for the East India Company. In Persia, with Indian merchants passing through on, through on ships flying the British flag. All this allowed the Sassoon to learn about India in general and Bombay in particular. When David Sassoon arrived in Bombay sometime in 1832, he began a new chapter in the history of the Sassoon family. Bombay's inhabitants at the time numbered no more than 200,000, but were very diverse. Hindus, Muslims, Parsis, Armenians, Portuguese, and Jews. There was a Jewish connection with Bombay from the 16th century, as one of the eminent Portuguese traders residing in Bombay was a Jew. But there was no community until the second half of the 18th century, when four different migrations came to the city. The first called their native Jew caste, known as the Bnei Israel. The second was Arab Jews from Ottoman provinces of Baghdad, Basra, and Aleppo. And the third was Cochin Jews from the Malabar coast. And the fourth were Persian-speaking Jews from Afghanistan, Bukhara, and Mashhad in Iraq. The migration of Arab Jews was strictly based on economic reasons to take advantage of commercial opportunities in India. Documents show that these Jews arrived in the last couple of decades of the 18th century. Prominent among them was a member of the well-known Basra family of the Gabbais, later intermarried with the Sassoon. By the early 1830s, there were approximately 20 to 30 families of a total Jewish population of about 2,000. And these families called themselves, quote, Jewish merchants of Arabia, inhabitants and residents in Bombay, end of quote. One traveler to the city in 1837 estimated the number of Baghdadis at 350, which represented less than 1% of the total population. Later on, Arab Jews were referred to erroneously as Baghdadi Jews 
irrelevant of where they came from as long as they were from Muslim countries. While David did not have any experience in trading, he benefited from two intangible assets, extensive contacts in the Gulf and Persia as a result of the family's involvement for many years in collecting taxes for the Ottoman Sultan in the province of Baghdad, and their good reputation among the merchant families in the Ottoman Empire and Iran. Yet, in spite of all these preparations, it must have been daunting to take this young family and siblings across the Arabian Sea to a foreign city where no family member resided and far away from home in Baghdad. Family was of immense importance to David Sassoon. His first wife died at a young age in Baghdad after bearing him two sons and two daughters. His second wife, who outlived him, gave birth to six sons and four daughters. Those are surviving. So in essence, you have a little army of 14 children who were spread around the globe. The sons were trained in business from their youth and were later sent to different locations such as Baghdad and the Gulf ports to meet other traders, gain experience and learn Arabic. Once in Bombay, David realized that the fate and success of the family had to be tied to the British Empire. And the firm of David Sassoon and Sons began a long connection serving British colonial economic and political interests wherever they had branched out. Although the founder David Sassoon neither set foot in Britain nor spoke English, David Sassoon was granted British citizenship in recognition of his services. He was fluent in Arabic, Hebrew, Persian, and Turkish and learned Hindustani, but never learned English. 20 years after his arrival in Bombay, he swore the oath of allegiance to the British and he still had not learned enough English to sign his own name. It was signed in Hebrew. Growing up in the Ottoman Empire, he never understood why his oath of allegiance was not only to a sovereign, but to the East India Company, which controlled India at the time. Despite his identification with the British and loyalty to the empire, even when he began to attend ceremonies where British officials loaded his generosity, he invariably replied in his native Arabic. It is really important to underline that Arabic was very important for the first and second generation of the Sassoon. His son Abdullah, who inherited David, was not different in this regard, in spite of his keen interest in all things British. Arabic remained his primary language, and he insisted that his family and employees learn it well. In one letter, he mandated that all clerks in Bombay be able to write in Arabic. In another, he had surprise and irritation at the inability of any of the clerks in Hong Kong to write the language properly. This is by 1890. David was by nature risk averse and studied every possible difficulty. 
In 1843-44, he sent his second son, Elias, to explore the possibility of expanding into China. After spending time in Canton, Hong Kong, and Shanghai, Elias reported back on the tremendous opportunities in this enormous new country. This coincided with the end of the first Opium War, 1839-1842, and the opening of Shanghai to foreigners. In the early 1850s, Elias settled in Shanghai and began reporting daily to his father in Bombay. The year 1858 was an important turning point in the destiny of Sheikh Sassoon's descendants. Two major events occurred, the legalization of opium in China and the dissolution of the British East India Company. The latter followed the unexpected Indian rebellion against the British in 1857, after which the British government took direct control of India, opening free trades to Indians and foreigners. This allowed families such as the Sassoons to capitalize on the vast commercial opportunity in India. The spread of the family was so wide. This is a map of where they really spread around. You can see there is major city ports. The three in red are the major hubs. The first hub was Bombay, then the second hub was Shanghai, and the third one was in London. I think it is really important to deliberate the relationship between the family and British imperialism, as this needs to be seen in the context of a newly migrant family who landed in a foreign country that was governed by the most powerful country in the world, the British Empire and the East India Company, which ruled India, as I mentioned, until the end of 1850s, the Sassoons were not only a migrant family, but they were also a part of a truly small minority. And interestingly enough, other minorities were not recent migrants to Bombay, such as the Parsis, also identified with British colonialism. Let me turn and talk a little bit about the, the business. Two commodities changed Bombay financially and led to the rise of new global merchants, cotton and opium. Though David Sassoon was not involved in those commodities initially, he monitored closely the trading scene in Bombay. His name is not mentioned in the archives or local newspapers throughout the 1830s and most of the 1840s. David Sassoon's rise to be among the top businessmen of Bombay was slow and gradual. There was not a one event or trade that changed the picture radically. But he kept developing a network of local and foreign traders and trustworthy counterparts and learning not only where the opportunities lie, but also the outs of trade and negotiations. He would spend days, for example, by the cotton exchange, talking to traders, agents, and scrutinize the international news carefully. David was convinced to enter the cotton market by witnessing the surge in demand for Indian cotton 
after the panic caused by the failure of American crop in late 1850s. Powerful trade circles such as the Manchester Chamber of Commerce had recognized that India could displace America as the most important source for this wide goal. But until 1850s, high transportation costs made Indian cotton less attractive. The outbreak of the American Civil War and consequent collapse of American exports of cotton provoked skyrocketing prices and a frenzy of speculation. As Sven Beckert wrote, cotton shipment changed hands many times between speculators before delivered to factories with each exchange a small profit could be made. The value of cotton more than quadrupled in the first two years of the war, pushing Indian peasants to increase their production. There was even rumors that people were tearing apart their mattresses and selling the cotton. Before long, however, there were signs that the market was losing steam and too many traders had too much stock. The explosive growth of cotton in India had been matched in other countries such as Egypt and Brazil, and global oversupply was a major concern. By 1865, reports began to circulate that cotton traders were experiencing big losses and that the steep fall in prices was creating havoc as traders did their utmost to unload their stock. A year later, reports carried details of a Bombay devastated financially with estimates of almost 80% of traders filing bankruptcy. As one brother admitted to another brother that he could not sleep for worry and opined that every member of the family had to be vigilant in order to avoid large losses since that would damage the most important element in their business, their reputation, which was sacrosanct. The violent swings in cotton prices illustrates how global merchants conducted their business in the mid 19th century without a vast communication system. The telegraph was becoming available. It was very expensive and not confidential. The business was set up so each major hub had its own house and each house made independent decisions. The relationship of trust among the branches allowed these family members to prosper, but it also led to constant recrimination and friction. Information was accordingly at the core of the most merchants' activities. Exacerbating the scarcity of reliable information were the employees or agents working for the merchants, but selling the information to competitors. And here, really, where the Sassoon had that advantage with their own language, because all their documents were um, unreadable to anyone else. Um, also, because of this emphasis on the information. David was the first merchant in India at the time to send a son to London. This really proved to be critical as the son had more information about 
the ongoings of the American Civil War than those in India, which gave the family an advantage. Volatile times needed nerves of steel and experience. What is really remarkable was the young most of these sons sent to all the corners of Asia to run the business. For example, Elias, when he was sent the first time to Shanghai, he was about 16 and a half, 17 years old. The son running Hong Kong in 1864 was 24, while the one in Shanghai, Suleiman, was only 23 years old. I tried to tell this to my students. <laughs> <laughs> there is no doubt that British imperialism and colonial interests forced China to purchase opium. The Sassoons probably began trading it in the mid 1840s after Elias arrived in China. And initially they were very small players in comparison to some Indian traders or British firms such as Jardine Matheson. But only slowly later, the Sassoons became a significant part of the trade. While opium had been used for thousands of years in India and China, both for medical and recreational use, the British victory in the Opium War opened the door to the export of large quantities of Indian opium to China. This became an, an integral part of a triangle trade. British people had become addicted to tea and developed a taste for Chinese silk, but had nothing to export to China in return. Opium filled the gap for decades and made up 16% of its total revenue. It also became the world's most valuable traded commodities in 1860 and remained so for a quarter of a century. In the words of one Indian scholar, Bombay became a great commercial and industrial center thanks to the opium business. Another scholar argued that, quote, without the drug, there probably would have been no British Empire, end of quote. Maybe that's a little bit exaggeration. Um, the story of opium is woven in throughout more than 60 years in the life of the Sassoon dynasty, and their role in the opium business in India and China is inextricably tied to the family's success. By the 1850s, opium had become an integral part of the family's trading business, particularly after its legalization in 1858. The sons, as you can see in the map, branched out to Singapore, Rangoon, Nagasaki, many other port cities. And according to the Jardine Matheson archives, the Sassoons adopted to cut opium prices, providing loans to producers in India, making bulk sales at low rates combined with advances to Chinese dealers, and probably most effective, advancing as much as three quarters of the cost to Indian dealers willing to consign shipments on a regular basis. And this strategy proved to be problem. Traders, whether of opium or cotton, preferred to deal with the Sassoons because of their willingness to pay up to 50% of the value of the merchandise. Furthermore, the family worked hard 
to maintain its relationship with its partners. The opium trade began to weaken by the 1890s due to international and regional factors. Opium is a case study of how interrelations and politics were during global expansion, I guess still today. Consistent from the beginning, the Sassoons mustered all their connections and political clout with the British government to ensure favorable opium trade terms. It was intertwined with the British ideology of free trade and its colonial policy. The Sassoons built strong relations with British politicians and senior officials to aid them in keeping up the, the trade. Faced by political agitation by both the House of Commons and House of Lords, the British government did what governments do best when tough decisions need to be made. It formed a commission of inquiry to study the subject in detail, thereby delaying the need for immediate action. The commission collected incredible amount of data and gathered witness responses from a large array of individuals in the nation. The finished report is seven volumes, a total of 2,500 pages, and it is one of the most prized sources on opium in all its features during the 19th century. But the commission reached the following conclusion. As a result of a searching inquiry and upon a deliberate review of the copy of evidence submitted to us, we feel bound to express our conviction that the movement in England in favor of active interference on part of the Imperial Parliament for the suppression of the opium habit in India has proceeded from an exaggerated impression as to the nature and extent of the evil to be controlled. The gloomy descriptions presented to British audiences of extensive moral and physical degradation by opium have not been accepted by the witnesses presenting the people of India, nor by those most responsible for this government of the country. This was truly an incredible conclusion. Effectively, after six years, the commission report removed the opium question from the British public agenda for another 15 years. The view of the Indian government prevailed for financial reasons, and for the anti-opium lobby, this was a severe blow after it felt it had garnered support politically and publicly. Though the battle was lost in 1895, the war was not over on both sides, and this saga continues after the World War I. In spite of the stigma attached to the trade, and the growing opposition in the second half of the 19th century, the Sassoons and other traders continued to defend the trade and attempt to put a hold to restrictions imposed by China. But as shown, a third of Bombay's trade came from opium even before the Sassoons arrived and the family simply viewed it 
as a viable trading business imitating successful local and foreign traders. The Sassoon's archives are also totally void of any self-criticism or doubt about the effects of opium. Apart from opium and cotton, the other main commodities that they traded were tea, silk, indigo, rice, and pearls. They were never in the money lending business, but they invested in different banks in India, Persia, Hong Kong, Shanghai, and the UK. Overall, the family was fortunate to have other major factors working in its favor. Global commodity prices began to boom in the second part of the 19th century as industrialization and economic growth were taking place in the major economies of the world. The British ideology emphasizing free trade guided the government's policies worldwide and facilitated the operation of global trading. And lastly, the development of transport within and outside India, particularly the opening of the Suez Canal in 1869. This commercial success continued in spite of the rifts and splits within the family that followed the death of the founder, David Sassoon. That's in the book. I'm not going to talk about it. I just want to make a very few general remarks. One is the connection to homeland. And Baghdad was almost there amongst the first and second generations of the Sassoon. Even in the 1850s, they were still referring to Bombay as Beledil Inglis, home <laughs> of the English. For religious questions or issues, they turned to Baghdad and its rabbis. And even in later decades, when the Sassoon intermingled with the English aristocracy and married outside the Baghdadi Jewish circle, there were reminders always of their roots. This is their crest. And around 1888, Abdullah, by then Sir Albert, wanted to imitate the European families. So as you can see at the top of the crust, there is the Hebrew words, emet, ve'imuna, and then the Latin at the bottom, candide et constante, with candor and constancy, had first been used actually by the Earl of Coventry a century and a half earlier. David probably would have approved of the primacy of trust and reputation, and perhaps also the palm tree which the crest carried as a reminder of their Baghdadi roots, but also the fact that date palms were praised both in the Bible and the Quran and became symbols of beauty and plenty. The coat of arms was later added to many of the family's buildings in Bombay and London and also to the grave of the founder. What is really intriguing that in 130 years of archives, there was not once a question whether the family should deal or not deal with someone because of religion, sect, or nationality. One question was always in the archives was asked, can we trust this trader? And this to me was the real true globalizations of open borders and where they dealt 
with every sect and religion and, and part. One last part, philanthropy. It actually, they initiated a very, very innovative method. They charged a philanthropy tax on every trade they did, whether the trade was profitable or not. And so when you look at their accounting ledger, you see you know, the cost of the purchase, the maritime tax, the insurance tax, and then the philanthropy of 0.25, quarter of 1%. At the end of the year, of course, there were hundreds of trades and a lot of money accumulated to be given. And their policy was to give only in the places where they work or work. So local communities benefited, but also as did the poor and, and young in cities such as Bombay. One last word about the decline. I'm not gonna to go to details, but suffice to say that I believe that one of the main reasons was their loss of their Arab Jewish identity. Anglicization and the desperate need to be fully accepted by the English aristocracy led them to drift away from their traditions and from their businesses in their fancy estates more interested in parties, horse racing, and hunting than dealing with the dramatic changes that were taking place around the globe. Thank you. Thank you very much indeed, Joseph, for a fascinating lecture. There is so much in the book, but of course you could only cover some of the main things. And I'm very glad you did mention the decline at the end, which I think is, is one of the more fascinating parts of the story about how things rise, but also how things fall and relatively quickly as you show. I'd now like to invite Abby Schlein to join Joseph to have a discussion about some of the themes in the book. As I mentioned earlier, there are many overlapping themes between Abby's family history and Joseph's, both hailing from Baghdad. Perhaps, Abby, would you like to start by just a few comments on having read the book and the sort of things, the resonance of perhaps your own family? Thank you, Michael. Very gladly, I would like to start with a few comments. Having read the book, from cover to cover, and having heard Joseph on the start of the week when he was the first speaker, and having read some of the reviews of his book, and as I would like to say is how impressed I was with this book. It's so deeply researched, it's so elegantly written, and it's beautifully produced, which makes it a real, a real pleasure to read. And Joseph writes with, well, I, I knew that he was trained in this college as an mm -hmm. economic historian. So I had no doubt that he would deal really well with the context, with the backdrop, with globalization. But I was really impressed by the sensitivity and skill with which he tells the story of this remarkable dynasty and the story of the people, the individuals, their business, as well as the role that they played in Iraq, in Britain, in India, and in China. There are many merits to this book, and I could go on for a long time, but I would like to single out one factor that makes this book unique, and that's Joseph's linguistic skills. As a fellow of St. Anthony's and a fellow of the Middle East Center, 
I have always valued the importance of languages in writing about history and the social sciences. For 25 years, I was an active member of the Department of Politics and International Relations, where it was possible to write a DPL thesis on a country without knowing the language. That's bad enough. But in America, it's even worse, much worse, because some American departments of political science apply the Sydney Verber rule. Sydney Verber was a distinguished social scientist, and the Verber rule said that no PhD student, no graduate student should be allowed to write a PhD on a country unless he or she had flown at least twice above it. <laughs> now, to turn to the book, I have quite a lot of questions. One question is, you're a member of the dynasty. You modestly describe yourself as a descendant of a modest branch of the dynasty which stayed behind in Baghdad. How does your own connection with the dynasty, how did it affect you, if it did in any way? Um, I actually never had kind of any emotional attachment to that. And I really approached it as, as a historian from the beginning. As I mentioned, the only and only reason that I was willing to engage with it is really when I found these archives, which have not been used. I actually, anyone who reads the book will realize I'm very harsh on the family in, in many instances. Sometimes maybe even comes across that I didn't like one or two personalities, but it, it really did not affect me. I didn't feel emotionally attached that if I write more about, you know, negative aspect that it's going to be reflecting I, I did not think about it that way. Okay. There is something specific to this biography, and that is that is, it's a collective biography of a dynasty, of a family. In this respect, it's unlike a traditional biography, which is of one person. I, I myself have written a biography of King Hussein of Jordan, and I found it quite easy to write a biography rather than writing a more general book, because you had a clear focus. There was one person, and it was easy to decide what to include and what, what not to include in the account. If the person that you're writing about was involved or was affected, then you would write about the episode about the and otherwise you would leave it out. But writing about a collective biography must have been a lot more complex and more difficult. Yes, I agree. Not only that, but, you know, one of those main characters was kind of omitted by the other people. So there are two books on the Zoom. One was published in the 1930s and one was published by a journalist in the 1960s. These two books and one book in Hebrew basically talk about Farha, three lines only, and give six pages to her husband. Well, when you start going through the archives and you see the incredible amount of correspondence, and I 
you know, that really was one of the things that came across. Here is actually is the first global CEO woman that run a global business in 1895. It was really unheard of. There are a lot of other matriarchs, but not running a day-to-day -day business in a global matter. And that was really totally. I mean, I tried to do it. You know, there is a huge amount about Victor Sassoon, and he left incredible amounts. So his diary still exists from the 1920s until literally the day before he dies in the early 1960s. And, and he has cut every press that talks about him. You know, it, it really depends. Of course, we don't have a lot about the founder. It, it comes across and they didn't start this intensive correspondence until the 1850s when all the suns spread around, because in the beginning, they were all working from one single office in Bombay. So they didn't really have correspondence. So the, it was a problem. It was not easy allocating as much material to each one of them. I talked about the importance of languages, but I forgot to say why I made this comment. <laughs> 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 the reason was because I wanted to point out that most of the correspondence of the family was conducted in Judeo-Arabic. And so it's Hebrew script, but the language, the content is Judeo-Arabic. Which is uh, a Baghdadi dialect Arabic, yes. but written in Hebrew yes. letters. And it's hard enough knowing Arabic and Hebrew. And Joseph is fluent in Arabic and in Hebrew, and he can read Judeo-Arabic. So he's uniquely qualified to have been able to, to do the research that went into this book. And the result is the very, very rich material that no one else could have accessed except you. So I'm sorry, I forgot to say that. I also want to pick up on something that you emphasized in the talk. And that is that the Sassoons were not expelled from Baghdad. They were not the victims of persecution or anti-Semitism. I emphasize this because one of the reviews says that there was a pogrom against the Jews, and there wasn't a pogrom. Uh, in fact, Iraq was a model of harmonious Muslim-Jewish relations. My family enjoyed or uh, benefited from that long tradition of religious tolerance and good relations between Muslims, Christians, and Jews. In Iraq, the Jews were one of many minorities, mm -hmm. unlike Europe, where the Jews were here and there was a Jewish problem. There wasn't a Jewish problem in Iraq. So would you like to say a bit more against this notion? Well, I as I mentioned in the talk, I mean, there is no such a thing. And I think the one, you know, there are two erroneous versions. One that they left because of cholera, which there was cholera, but they didn't leave because of cholera. And if you're leaving, fleeing a country because of cholera, you don't take only one son and leave another three there. The second is the fact, again, it was really targeted because of this uh, conflict with the Wali, who was very corrupt. And before that Wali, 
the father was the Saraf Bashi or the tax collector on behalf of the Sultan in Baghdad, which is it was a, basically the finance minister in the province. So it was a very prominent, but when a, a corrupt Wali came in, the, he needed to start to raise money for his own little army and you know adventures, which at the end afterwards, the, the Sultan pushed him out. There are many biographies of Ashkenazi Jews and European and North American Jews. There are many autobiographies, but there are very few autobiographies of Sephardi Jews. And in this respect, your book was an eye-opener about the world of Sephardi Jews. There is a view of, a dominant view of Jewish history, the, the lacrimose version of Jewish history, which is Jewish history, which consists of a never-ending chain of discrimination, persecution, violence, culminating in the Holocaust. And this version of history probably fits the history of the Jews in Europe, but it most certainly doesn't fit the history of the Jews in the Arab lands. Were you conscious of contributing something which is relatively rare, which is about Iraqi Jews? Well, I really didn't know because, as I said, even the sons talked about fleeing it because of you know, anti-Jewish feelings in Baghdad. And it's only when I, you know, working through the Ottoman archives that it became clear and the correspondence, because at some point it was reported to the Sultan that this is what happened. And, you know, two years later, actually, the governor was deposed of, of his place. I mean, I think it is very interesting, and I talk about it in the aspect of Anglicization. In many ways, also, the Baghdadi Jews, especially like the Sassoons, were better accepted in England than the Rothschilds, which is really interesting because for two reasons. One, I think that the, the Rothschilds were looked upon as nouveau riche, you know, the, the new wealth, and they should not be part of the aristocracy. And two, all the prejudices of being in the banking and lending business. The Sassoons were exactly the opposite. They were not in the money lending business, but also they were treated from the before as an aristocracy that they were aristocrats in the sense in Baghdad. I talked about it the other day and I mentioned, I think it's interesting. Usually you read stories of rags to riches. It's actually riches to rags, riches and then decline. It's almost four waves. Each one is very different. So there are really a lot of differences. Well, on, on the British connection, this is a really important dimension of the story. The British connection is relevant to the rise of the dynasty, the success of the dynasty, and finally to the fall of the dynasty. So it's there all along in your book. And I'd like to sell out well on why the British connection was so important for the rise of this dynasty. And to suggest that it is because the British 
in the empire preferred minorities to the mainstream. Yeah. For a number of reasons. One was education. In Iraq, there was a very good Jewish educational system, the Alliance Israelite Universelle. My mother went to the school for girls. Everything was taught through the medium of French. And she came out having learned very good French, English, Arabic, and Hebrew. So the Jews in Iraq knew languages, but also they were a minority and therefore less likely to be swayed by the currents of Arab nationalism and more, more dependent. So would you agree that this is part of the explanation of why this assumes- Yeah, I mean, we're talking about a hundred years before all Arab, I mean, they were part of the Ottoman Empire. Yeah. So that has to be taken in context. I think that definitely the identification also from their point of view, they arrived into, a, as I said, into a foreign land, into a foreign city. And so the immediate thing is to identify with the most powerful country in the world. And, and their interests were aligned. I mean, as I meant, talked about it, there is the free trade policy, which was more an ideology rather than a policy. This expansion of global trade, um, everything kind fitted with their interests. There was definitely an alignment, but also the feeling of, you know, the, the family identified with the most powerful power that existed. I think with the decline, it almost went to the extreme of desperately wanting to be part. And once they became part of the aristocracy, after all, they gained many titles. Some of them, you know, like Philip Sassoon became undersecretary for the Air Force. He was the secretary of Floyd George. And then others, another son, from another a brother became an MP. So you have these different things. And of course, intermarrying with the Rothschilds and Gunsberg and all these dynasties, they now entered a different world. I mean, if you take it to the extreme of the fourth generation, the generation of Siegfried Sassoon and Philip Sassoon, one person like Siegfried Sassoon never knew he was Jewish and definitely didn't know that his father was born in India from a Baghdadi origin. Philip Sassoon didn't want to be identified. And when he went to visit as undersecretary for the Air Force to Iraq in 1920s, he met with King Faisal, but didn't bother to meet with anyone of the family that was there. On and on, there was by the 1930s, all kind of signals that on the coat of arms that I showed, they started erasing the Hebrew words because they wanted just the Latin. They started saying when people asked them, they are originally from Toledo in Spain because Spain sounded nicer than Baghdad, <laughs> right? So I think it's really the, the first two generation the Baghdadi Jewish context was so fundamental and critical to them. It was the exact opposite by the fourth generation. In the afterward, you reflect on the causes of the decline of the dynasty. And just now, and in your talk, you dwelt on the fact that they moved to England 
and emulated the upper classes and became a bit like them. Instead of being industrious and disciplined, yeah. they led a dissolute life of pleasure. They became a thief. Another factor that you deal with is poor tax planning, that they all had, they had fabulous wealth and they had, all had wills, but some of these wills weren't so good and weren't very tax efficient. They were very generous. So in some of the wills, the list of beneficiaries was about four pages, which reminded me that in our community, where there is a will, there are a lot of relatives. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, there are really a number of factors. I actually also say that at the end of the day, taxation was not the main reason for their decline. But it definitely, I think there was a something fundamental that it's the planning at the beginning with trust didn't take place, unlike, let's say, the Rothschild. And each generation when the father died and if you have six children and no one is working well it has first you're paying 50 percent in death duties and then the other 50 percent it's split among six or seven children and since none of them was working no one can afford to buy these beautiful houses that they acquired in london and the estates and it really, it's the absolute kind, you know, almost model of how wealth get dissipated each generation as it starts spreading and becomes smaller and smaller units. And each unit then in one more generation gets again split. And so it was nothing. I mean, at some point they have these, and I have in the book descriptions of some of the fancy houses that they had in London and in the country and even in Scotland, but none of them was left because each generation had to get rid of them, to sell them, to pay for the taxes and to split it among a number of, of children or sometimes siblings. And that is not a good, a good way to maintain wealth. The Sassoons were also known as the Rothschilds of the East and you, compare them to another rich dynasty, the Kaduris. And you have a passing comment to uh, the Lehman brothers in America. So this opens up a much bigger question, wider question, and you don't have to answer it, but was there anything in their Jewish makeup that explained the success of these dynasties? I don't know about that. I mean, I think it's a matter of, I, I argue in the book, it's not only about, you know, being astute and a good trader, but you have to be lucky to be in the right place at the right time. And being in India at the right time, it was all kind of factors that worked to their, you know, the American Civil War comes in, as I explained, and cotton prices quadruple. Opium becomes a legal commodity. The Suez Canal is opened and suddenly trade routes are cheaper and faster. On and on. I mean, you have to know how to take advantage of it. And that's, you know, what happened. They did. Thank you, Joseph. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank I have you. A time for a few questions, both from the audience here in Oxford. 
and hopefully online. So open it up to the audience before. Faisal. Thank you very much, Joseph. I, I obviously have personal interest in this wonderful book because both myself and at least three generations of my family in Bombay have grown up with hearing about or interacting with Sassoon Docks, Sassoon Hospitals, Sassoon Library, Sassoon Estate, all of which still bear their names and buildings still exist. So it's a very real living presence in that city. But apart from that, I had a couple of questions. So my first question has to do with your account of what the Sassoons brought with them from Baghdad that allowed them to assume their initial prominence. And you suggested that this was the reputation and the contacts they had through the Ottoman Empire and in the Persian Empire as well. So when they move to India and then further eastwards, which in non-Ottoman lands without those contacts, do they continue that model of, if you will, uh, networks and connections that allow them to repeat their success? Or is there something new that happens? Uh, and do they become part of another kind of, if you will, economic logic? And the second question has to do with the reasons for the decline that you mentioned. And I, I take your point, but it also strikes me as equally important that these sort of family-based firms tend not to survive more than a few generations. That's true of the big Indian Parsi uh, Hindu Muslim firms as well. And I've always been surprised by the fact that unlike in England or in America, they tend not to end up as joint stock companies in, you know, of the kind the East India Company was. The East India Company is arguably the first joint stock company. So there you have the model of modern capitalism. But interestingly, it is not taken up by vernacular capitalists, vernacular merchants. Until very recently, and in India even today, it's still family firms that last two or three, four generations. The Tatas are the only ones practically who have actually moved in the direction of corporate direction in that sense, which is not family controlled. So I was wondering if that plays a role. And attached to this question is one about laws of inheritance. So we know that with Indian mercantile families, including very big ones, it's the nature of the personal law as it was known, or community specific law that determined the success or failure of the family's concerns. So with, with Sharia, with the splitting up of the inheritance every generation, that was a major problem. And you know, Muslim traders yeah. had to figure out how to circumvent it. With the Hindu law, there's a joint family and how to deal with that. Was there something along these lines or, or were the Sassoons entirely eventually sort of removed from any kind of Jewish law when they say moved to England? Thank you for these questions. Yes, the answer to the first question about reputation contact is absolutely and categorically yes, even when they were dealing with totally new people. And the archives has a lot. So I didn't realize, you know, in cotton, there was a lot of forgeries, basically people add water agents to the cotton. So it spread when it arrives to the final destination. And a few times the orders came back from Abdullah, uh, uh, you know, forget it, pay them back everything that they paid. It's not their fault because our reputation and we want to have this contact intact. And that really, really stayed until kind towards the end when, when they stopped in this trading business. I mean, one of the things is they never met those contacts. 
you know. So that's why the incredible amount of trust becomes so critical. It's very interesting because by the 1860s, 70s, a lot of the British firms, even before that, insisted on contracts. This assumes never wanted to sign contracts because they really said it's our reputation and your reputation. That to me also was the most incredible thing is how in that world without internet and without telegraph and without communication, people still knew, you know, who has a good reputation in Zanzibar and who does not have a, a reputation. And it, it just continued throughout that time. The question is much more complicated about the different generations. I think there are families that kept it going. The rules of inheritance, whether in India or Britain, was always the, the law of the land and not the religious law, unlike in Islamic countries. And I agree with you that in Islam, the inheritance led to really dissipation of wealth, of creators of wealth. At some point in the 20th century, they began on a new trick, which didn't work, but ended up being in courts. And there is very interesting material on that of court. They tried to claim that their residency was in India because they kept houses in India. Because I think at some point, the death duties in the UK was about 60% in Britain, then 55%. Even there was complaints in some of the things, one that 300,000 pounds, which was a huge amount to the National Trust and was furious that even on that, she wasn't getting any exemption on that donation. I think it is harder to keep it after four or five generations. I mean, the Tatas are really exceptional, but there are more and more, maybe not in the huge wealth of you know, the Rothschilds or the Tatas, but there are quite a number who have managed to do it for It's a tough question, and it's really tough how to take it from one generation to another and keep it. Another question. I'd like to pick up on one of the points that Avi was making. In the course of doing the research for your book, you had some fantastic encounters. You got to meet some very, very interesting people in pursuing the Sassoon story. And the one that struck me, Joseph, was when you went to Hong Kong to get access to the Kaduri archives. And, and so I'd like to bring the question back to the Kaduris, which Avi mentioned, because they are still players. One has a sense that their position in Hong Kong suggests that families that came in, they came after the Sassoons, as I understand, but they're still there. And so as one talks about the decline of a family like the Sassoons, are there lessons to be learned from those that have managed to adapt and survive and thrive. Is there something about the experience of the Kaduris that you could bring into your analysis too? Yeah, I mean, their experience is fascinating, but not only that they came after and the founder worked at the Sassoon's until he left, but more than that, when the last character you saw of Sir Victor Sassoon in Shanghai, he left when World War II broke out, and he also wasn't getting along with the Japanese who invaded Shanghai in 1937, stayed behind and pretended he was going to be one of those peace mediators between the Japanese and, and the British. 
there is a lot about this in the book. But the most critical aspect he left before people were interned in Hong Kong and in Shanghai. The Kaduris were interned for four years in a camp, first in Shanghai and then in Hong Kong, and lost everything. But in 1945, they started everything from scratch. And of course, they lost their assets in 49, you know, in, in Shanghai. But the difference is, is Victor Sassoon sold all the agencies against the advice of his right-hand man and wanted to go to the Bahamas. And of course, you know, I don't need to tell anyone what happened to Hong Kong if you had real estates and businesses and contacts in 1946 to roll it 50 years later. And that was a huge. I think really what differentiates is the personalities. I mean, you know, one person was interested in the family and the business and determined to create it. And one another who was a playboy who wanted just to run away and become an international figure. And when that didn't happen, he moved on to settle in, in the Bahamas and do horse racing, which he won the Derby four times. But as I argue, he bet on the wrong horse at the time. Thank you, Joseph. Sadly, we've come to the end of our time for our session here, but I thank you very much both to our audience here in Oxford and your audience online for coming. We invite you to join us next week where we will have a panel on the crisis in contemporary Syria. But I'd like you to please join me in thanking Avi for joining us and particularly for Joseph for such a, a wonderful lecture and being able to give a talk about his new book which I encourage you, all of you here, to have copies on sale outside. Thank you very much, Joe.